Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 67. We see many of the themes we have been looking at over the last several months converge into this one psalm of praise. We've seen the theme of the nations coming to Zion. We've seen the theme of blessing to the land, fruitfulness of the land. When we read Psalm 67, we have to know from the perspective of the psalmist, it is speaking of Christ, the Messiah's future kingdom. Now here's the point that we have to understand, is that we are in that kingdom now. So from the psalmist's standpoint, it's looking forward to the kingdom of the Messiah. But from the standpoint of us, We're in that kingdom. It's being fulfilled. It's working towards a complete consummation of that kingdom. Christ said this himself in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so what we're reading is of what is the reality of our time right now. But we have not reached the full consummation of this reality. So let us hear the psalmist, beginning in verse 1. May God be gracious to us. And bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is a psalm that's particularly easy to see the divisions. There's three divisions, you'll notice. The first is this motivation for God's grace in verses 1 through 2. Then you'll notice in verses 3 through 5, it begins with let the, a call. And then verses 6 through 7 is another call for God's blessing upon the people. So you see those divisions, verses 1 through 2, then verses 3 through 5, and then finally verses 6 through uh, 7. And it begins with this motivation for our praise, motivation for God's grace upon us is stated. It begins by stating this is may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now, immediately, you should be thinking ironic blessing. That should be the first thought that comes to our mind when we hear this is one of the functions of the sons of Aaron was to call blessings upon the people. 
In Numbers chapter 6, we read these words, what is called the Aaronic blessing in verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This was the priest's job is to bless the people that God's grace may be upon them. And it was speaking of a future blessing that they would receive when they inherit the land. A blessing that would be coming upon them where they would experience the abundance of God's blessing in the land that God had given them. That would be freedom from their enemies. They would have fruit from the vine. That they would have the abundance of all the things that God had promised to His people if they had been obedient to Him. And so the psalmist begins with this same call for God to be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And so this is, this is asking corporately, may God be gracious to us and bless us, his face to shine upon us. This is a, a corporate prayer for a corporate group of people that are recognizing in their praise that they are fully dependent upon God and his grace. Now you think about the times that we ask the Lord to be gracious to us, the the times that we ask the Lord to bless us, in various ways that manifests itself in our prayers, through our petitions to the Lord, and what we're asking uh, from the Lord to give to us, we ask for the Lord to be gracious to us. Anytime we ask God to give us anything, we're asking Him to be gracious to us because He doesn't owe us anything. This is where it becomes very challenging, and the psalmist corrects our longing and desires. And we just begin by asking this question, what is the motivation that drives our prayer life to ask the Lord for His grace and His mercy? What drives us? What is our motivation when we ask God to give us thanks. Look at verse 2. That. The word that is the beginning of a purpose clause, a purpose statement. Why is the psalmist asking God for his grace? Why is the psalmist asking God to bless them corporately? Notice what it says, that your way may be known on earth. What motivates a plea for grace from the heart of the psalmist? It was that God's way would be known. And your saving power among all nations. How does that inform our own prayer life when we're asking God for thanks, when we're asking God to bless us? Is it to fulfill something in us, or is it for a greater purpose that God would be glorified and that people would be saved because of how God has shown His grace to us? 
Now, is it wrong to ask the Lord for things that you need? No. Jesus teaches us to ask him for things we need. But I want you to think of it by these two words. There's an ultimate purpose in something, and that is the ultimate thing. And then here's the next word, penultimate. Penultimate is not ultimate. What is ultimate in driving our asking of God ought to be that people would know his ways. The penultimate might be the things that we need. But the ultimate, the ultimate driving force behind anything we ask when we're asking for for God's grace and mercy ought to be that he himself is glorified in people praising him because they have known him. And he has known them. Well, think about this. They would know his way. Jesus says this in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know his way is to know him. That they would know his redemption. They would know that he has a gracious will for mankind. Let me ask you, why would we ask the Lord to bless, say, our church? To ask the Lord to shine his face upon us. It ought to be so that his way may be known in this community. That his way will be known. Now, what is the way of the Lord? Well, to know the Lord is to know the way of the Lord. But specifically, this has a salvific purpose in it. Because as Calvin said, rightly, in the beginning of Institutes, you don't know yourself until you know God, and you don't know God until you know yourself. What's that paradox mean? Well, until we have contrasted ourselves next to a holy God, we don't recognize we're a sinner. We just think we're, we're just not as bad as the worst person possible, and maybe we're not as good as the best person possible, but we're somewhere there in that squishy middle, so we should be okay. We think that way until we compare and contrast ourselves against a holy God, and then we all of a sudden realize who we are. And who we are is not good. Because when we know the way of the Lord, the way of the Lord can be nothing less than holiness. Which brings us to an awareness of our need. You think of the idea of of the holiness of God in terms of his law that he has given. What happens when we look into the mirror of the law? We recognize we are transgressors of it and we fall short of it. The law reveals not only what it is that God commands of his creation, but it reveals also that we can't keep that law. That we fail in keeping that law. That that everything in us wants to fight against that law. 
In fact, the law doesn't make us obedient. It just restrains us from doing what we want to do. So how we know the way of the Lord is to know the Lord himself. He goes on to say you're saving power among all nations. How do we understand that Christ came to the world to die for the world? How do we understand that? Well, we see the expectation of the Messiah is that he would come and die for the nations. And that the nations would experience the saving power. So when we think of that future kingdom from the perspective of the psalmist, when did that get ushered in? In Christ's work here. Because upon Christ's ascension, his instructions were to do what? Go into the nations. And the disciples just went, said, yeah, we'll go do that. We'll, and they did it just fine, right? No. The Holy Spirit had to come and say, you have to go to the nations. Christ commanded you go, to go to the nations. Now go to the nations. Wait, I don't go to anything that's unclean. But Christ came for the nations that all the nations would see saving power. How do you take a people that have never read the Bible, the Old Testament, did not know, were not uh, recipients of the promises or the covenants, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, they've walked in darkness, they know nothing of Christ, and then here comes this guy named Paul, who's nothing to look at, who probably looked deformed in his face. And you say, yeah, I'll listen to that guy and give up everything to follow this Jesus that he says rose from the dead. Well, because the, the Scripture tells us that in the Messianic kingdom, it says your saving power will be known among the nations. This is a promise that the nations will come to salvation. They will experience that power. You think about, again, how Paul talks about our from life or from death to life in the terms of resurrection. And he speaks of the power of resurrection is the power of God. How will they know that saving power? Well, when this psalm was written, they might have been thinking about it in terms of something like the Exodus. Now, God will rescue his people in, the, in, in that sense. But this is not speaking of it in that sense. This is speaking of salvation, of eternal salvation, that to know the Father is to receive eternal life. And so the expectation of the Messiah is that through him... The way would be known on earth and that the nations would experience the saving power of God. 
And then it is followed with something. And the the way is important here to see this. Salvation here, the prayer for grace, motivated by the fact that the psalmist wants God's name to be known. And what happens when we receive Christ? When we have received the Messiah, when we have accepted the Messiah, when we have rested in the Messiah... Well, it tells us in verses 3 through 5, you'll notice verse 3 and verse 5 are stating the same thing. So let the peoples praise you. What peoples? The peoples of the nations. Those that were wandering in darkness, that had never been told how to worship God rightly. They're now called to praise God. Let all the peoples praise you. This is speaking of the nation. This is speaking of the the future inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. That the nations will come and praise the Messiah. Think of Psalm 96 and verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. A call for all nations to come and worship the Messiah. This was the expectation of Israel that one day Judah and Israel, south, north and south, would be reunited. And in that reunification, there would be the Gentiles coming to call upon the Messiah. This is explicitly the promise of the new covenant. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and to be careful to obey all my rules. It's fascinating in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus when he says you must be born again. He's referencing that very passage. Jeremiah, which most explicitly speaks of the new covenant, when he speaks of the reunification of Judah and Israel, Prior to Jeremiah 31, we have a glimpse of that expectation, the messianic expectation and the inclusion of the Gentiles. In Jeremiah chapter 3, 
says this in verse 16, And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. And at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it. When did that happen? Christ says this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What's the connection that this has with us? Is this is a prayer for the Gentiles and for the nations to know the Lord. This is an anticipation of the Great Commission, which we are a part of. And I want you to know the connection that we see in evangelism to this passage. The result of evangelism is praise for God, but not praise for man. We can never disconnect our desire in evangelism, yes, for people to be saved. Yes, for our lost loved ones to come and call upon Christ, and we will get to spend eternity with them, joyfully worshiping God. But remember those terms, ultimate, penultimate. Those are only penultimate. The ultimate is that the nations will worship God. That he will be glorified in our praise for him. This is a call for the nations to praise. It's amazing that in the Psalms, over and over and over again, to to the point that it becomes redundant, God's word, God the one who created you, The God who created all things continually in his word tells his people to do what? Praise him. Over and over and over again, we're told to praise God. And notice this is corporate praise. This is the gathering of the saints to worship God. So the motivation in salvation is that people will worship God. So we have to see this. Salvation and worship actually go in hand. There's a cause and effect, if you will. Someone comes to know the Lord, what's the response? Well, we were told what the response was in Ezekiel. We were told what the response is in the new covenant in Jeremiah. Your people will obey you. Why? Because God's given them a new heart. And what does the new heart desire to do? The new heart desires to worship God. There's something wrong In the heart of the believer, there's something missing in the heart of the believer. There's a a yearning in the heart of the believer that is missing worship. And you see this with with some of our elderly saints that that cannot be in corporate worship where it, it affects them. It bothers them and they know that there's something missing and they genuinely miss being in corporate worship. 
Why? Because God has given them a heart that now desires that worship. May He increase our heart's desire to worship. I want you to notice the description of the worship. Let the nations be glad. Let them sing for joy. That glad means to rejoice, to be merry. It's magnanimous. We're told that worship is to be glad worship throughout the Psalms. Just a few examples of that. Psalm 32, verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And then the next Psalm over, Psalm 33, and verse 21, For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. This gladness, this joy is to accompany worship because God has so satisfied us. Now, this was that they may know his power, that they would experience his salvation, that they would know his ways, so the people would praise him. Are we impressed by great things? Yes. We're impressed by great things. If you see something in nature that's impressive, Niagara Falls. I saw Lake Victoria. It's massive. It's incredible. I flew over the Great Lakes and couldn't believe the size. I thought I was flying over the ocean. It's so massive. You can't help but be impressed by it. And just experiencing greatness fills your heart with something. That is to be our response to a great God. Is there something satisfying in God? But I want you to notice this. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Now you might think, wait. If this is speaking of the realization of the kingdom now, why is it that we see so much injustice in the world? Why is it that we see the nations in rebellion? Well, actually, we do in one sense. But in another sense, actually, we see the nations in obedience. What do I mean by that? Wherever the Church of Christ is named, you see a people being judged in equity and walking in righteousness. And that's all over this earth. Is that you actually see wherever the church is named, you see judging of the peoples with equity and you see guidance for those churches. Wherever there is a true church, there is justice. That is one of the reasons why church discipline is absolutely essential. Otherwise, the church is not practicing equity. What actually means we've become antinomian, anti-law. 
which means we say that there is no lawgiver that matters. This is supposed to lead us to praise. And then it comes out just repeating verse 3 is, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And verses 6 through 7 speaks of blessing. And you think of it as the blessings as they would come into the land. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The immediate context was the blessings that Israel would experience, which Israel could attest to. And you think of that high point in Israel's history was under Solomon where they experienced actually the nations coming to Israel. But what happened with the nations coming to Israel? Well, the nations stopped coming to Israel after Solomon out of respect for Israel. They started going to Israel to conquer them. Prior, though, in the reign of Solomon, the nations came into Israel just like what is prayed here. And then, what happens? The nations come in to conquer Israel. This desire for this blessing and its increase and the fulfillment of this only comes when Christ returns. And I think that we would have to see this as including the mass and gathering of the Jews, which will be coming. As Paul himself says in Romans 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise Grace would no longer be grace. And so what do we see is that there is coming a time, in verse 16 and on, the branches that were taken out will be grafted back in. And the fruitfulness of the land will be blessed. So not only do you see two things here, the future inclusion of the Gentiles, which we experience, but you see the future promise of Israel, ethnic Israel, to be grafted back in. This is speaking of an end-time salvation. Now, how do we understand this psalm in its fullness? Well, from the, from the perspective of the psalmist, it's looking forward. From our perspective, it's looking back to what was accomplished, to what is being accomplished, and to what will be accomplished. 
This is speaking of the kingdom of Christ. Now, how do we understand the kingdom of Christ? Again, Christ tells us that it's inside of you, right? There's something we have to understand about the kingdom of God, and it's this. Christ is sovereign over all that exists. There's nothing outside of his domain. All things. Secular governments, world powers, everything is under his sovereign hand. But you see a special rule of Christ also mentioned in in, in Scripture, and that is Christ is the head of the what? Of the church, which is speaking of his spiritual kingdom, which he rules over. What do we see of that kingdom? We see how it's unfolding right now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is making the argument for the resurrection. In verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. You see the whole swoop of history there. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put under subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. That is a complex passage of Scripture but it is speaking of Christ's rule over the nations and the full consummation of it that comes at the end time where the new heavens, the new earth will be ushered in and we will have the increase of his blessings. So what we must understand about this praise and this Gentile inclusion is that God is bringing this about now in His Son, and we are in the midst of it. Is that the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is being ushered in, and the kingdom will be fully realized when Christ has returned. When we think of the kingdom, we must know that it is now and that Christ is king, and all things are under his subjection, even at this moment. The second thing is is a question for us to consider. When we think of the kingdom of Christ, and how he is sovereign over all, and how he is ruling in the hearts of his, his people, If you're in Christ, he's ruling in your heart right now. If you are in Christ, he is king over you. He is your Lord. He is your sovereign. Yes, like we said, 
He's over all things. But there's a special ruling of Christ in the church as head of the church. Knowing that reality, why is gladness missing from worship? Why is it a struggle to gather? Why is it hard? And how do we see it increase? How do we restore that? How does the gladness flow from our hearts to praise, which is ultimate, for our God? There could be no other way than asking for his grace, that he would increase our heart's desire to worship him, to praise him. And that as we think about why we ask God for things, we question the motivation of our heart, because if it's about us, we're too quick to be disappointed. But if it is about God's glory and God's will, we're never, ever disappointed with it. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to establish the kingdom and that he is our king even now. We look forward to the day when our king returns and we see the full consummation of his kingdom. We pray that now this would fill our hearts with, with gladness, with joy, and that it would bubble out of us into praise, into singing, that our hearts would be glad for this salvation that we have in Christ and that he is our sovereign king. Comfort us with this truth when we see a rejection of his kingdom, when we see those fighting against his kingdom, may we be reminded of his sovereign rule over all things. Father, we need your help for this. We pray your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.